Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our morning service, Sunday 14th of April, 2019. This morning we are joined by Pastor Clifford Morrison, who takes his reading from Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 11 and brings us a message entitled, Behold Your King. Come with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the fold of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the roads, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen, and God will bless to our hearts his word. Some of us are old enough to recall the present Queen's coronation and all the street parties that took place to mark that historic occasion. So far as the actual coronation was concerned, splendor and pageantry were the order of the day. The Queen dressed in the most expensive robes and jewellery, and was driven through the capital city in an ornate carriage drawn by stately horses, accompanied by her uh, courtiers and foreign dignities. And following them, there would be regiments of the nation's finest soldiers. At the climax of these events, she would be presented with a, a scepter and seated on the appointed throne to go through a ceremony signifying the transfer of power and authority into the hands of the monarch. From a religious point of view, there would come a moment in the proceedings when the queen would be presented with a copy of the scriptures and these words would have been spoken. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Musicians would play and sing and the crowds would break into spontaneous chorus to praise their sovereign. And every part of the ceremony was designed to highlight the majesty and the glory and the power and the dignity of the queen. Of all the coronations celebrated, there has never been one to equal what we have read in Matthew 21. Here we have the divine record of the most significant coronation 
the world has yet seen. But it was in stark contrast to the kind that I've just described. It was a true coronation to a true king. He was affirmed king and in a sense inaugurated into his kingship. But there was no pomp. There was no splendor. And uh, it was a sort of nondescript sort of pageantry. Traditionally, this coronation has been called Jesus' triumphal entry. It was the last major public appearance before his crucifixion and was an extremely important event in his divine ministry on earth. And in the midst of all that took place, the true spiritual significance of this event can be so easily lost. Without question, the message of Palm Sunday is the message of the king. And when our Lord rode into Jerusalem on that day, he offered himself as king to the nation of Israel. But as you know, he was rejected. So much so that Matthew records these words of lament spoken by the Savior himself as he surveyed the city later in the chapter. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. But in A.D. 70, the city was raised to the ground and God's word was full fulfilled. The story is recorded in all the gospel writings about the Savior coming to Jerusalem in the last week of his earthly ministry. And as we survey it, we cannot help but note certain things. He came riding on a donkey and was hailed as a king. He's coming in the name of the Lord, fulfilling the words of Zechariah 9.9 that we've read this morning. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble riding on a donkey. The following day, he exercised his authority as a chief priest when he returned to Jerusalem from Bethany and entered the temple to cast out the money changers and those who commercialized the temple. On the third day, on the third occasion, rather, he came to Jerusalem not as a king, not as a priest, but as a weeping prophet who at the end of three years of ministry wept over the city of Jerusalem. He comes as a prophet, he comes as a priest, he comes as a king. For more than 30 years, Jesus had lived in the shadow of the cross. During three years of ministry, he had done mighty works, and the time drew near to finish his greatest work on earth. And before the end of the week, he offered himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And the week was crowned by his resurrection from the dead. It's a week of contrast, isn't it? It began with Christ riding on a colt, and it ended with Christ carrying a cross. It began with the crowd shouting their, sponta their spontaneous acclamations of Hosanna. And soon they showed how superficial their adoration was when it was so quickly followed by cries of hateful rejection. The disciples flocked to him, but after a few days they fled from him. He rode in as a victor, but soon he became a victim. 
He came as a king to the coronation and finished up being crowned with cruel thorns. They shard him with their praises and later they spread him with their vulgar spittle. And they cruelly nailed him on a tree. What a momentous week. But I want to think of Palm Sunday in three ways. You see, I believe Palm Sunday draws our attention to three very important things. First of all, it draws our attention to the accuracy of the Scriptures. To the accuracy of the Scriptures. Uh, From this text this morning and many other supporting texts, it is clear that Jesus was always in control of the events that affected his life. He initiated his own coronation when he sent the two disciples to procure the mount on which he would ride into Jerusalem. He set in motion a series of crucial events that culminated in the voluntary gracious sacrifice of himself on the cross that had been divinely planned from eternity past. The enemies of Jesus would try to tell us that Jesus was carried away by the enthusiasm of the mob and and he became caught up in a web of events that caught him by surprise. He got carried away with himself and he ended up being helplessly killed in an untimely death. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was in control and the scriptures were being fulfilled. We see the divine characters shining through what was happening. We see his omniscience. He knew all about the donkey and cult, where they were, waiting to be found by two disciples. He knew that these disciples would be questioned, and so he gives them the very words to speak. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord has need of them, and he will send them right away. There were times when the Lord asked a question. And that question demonstrated his humanity. Other times, he demonstrated a perfect knowledge of people and events. And I think it's impossible to tell where one ends and the other begins, nor should we seek to try and do that. It's all part of the mystery of God. And he knew all about the animal, its age, the fact that it had never been broken to the saddle, that it was tied up, that it was tied up to keep it under restraint. He knew that the disciples would be challenged when they attempted to release it and that it would be readily made available to them. He knew all about the owner of the coat and that he was bestowing on him the unique and priceless privilege of ministering to the master and having a share in the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. In the years to come, each time this man read the story of the gospel, he would recall this remarkable day to his mind and say, you know, it was my animal that he used. And the scriptures tell us that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. The daughter of Zion refers to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which is sometimes referred to as Zion, because Mount Zion is the city's highest and most prominent hill. Five hundred years Before this event, the prophet Zechariah had predicted that the people of Jerusalem would heal the Messiah as their king, that he was coming into the city and that he would be humble, he would be gentle, and he would ride on an appointed beast. We're told that the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. 
that brings to my attention a very important principle and a very important lesson. Sometimes the Lord leads us in ways that demand a clear and undiluted trust in his word. Because he never leads us contrary to his word. Our decisions must be the outflow of our obedience and they must not contradict the clear principles of Holy Scripture. It seems out of place and totally inappropriate that any king, much less the king of kings, should make his triumphal entry mounted on a donkey rather than a beautiful white stallion or on a regal chariot. But that is what God's prophet predicted and that is what God's son did because that was part of the divine plan. It was not God's will that a son would enter the city in earthly splendor to reign in earthly power. He did not come in wealth. He came in poverty. He did not come in grandeur, but in meekness. He did not come to slay Israel's enemies, but to save his people. The incarnation was the time of his humiliation, not the time of his glorification. And because he was a king, like no other king, his coronation was like no other coronation. By the standards of the world and by the schemes of earthly king, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was anything but triumphal. It wasn't because men interfered with heaven's arrangements for it all, but rather it was due to the fact that this was the sovereign choice of God the Father and of God the Son, who himself willingly came to earth as the servant king to fulfill God's will and to take upon himself the sin of the world. Nothing could have been more appropriate than the bear of the world's sin than the bearer of the world's sin's burden to enter this holy city riding on a lowly beast of burden. The accuracy of the scriptures. The disciples here could not fully appreciate all that was happening. It was only after the events that they realized this. At first the disciples didn't understand it, but only after Jesus' glorification did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. Often in the Bible, we come across these words, these things were done, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so this morning, Palm Sunday teaches us about the accuracy of the scriptures. Palm Sunday teaches us something about the, the futility of the people. We see that in verses 8 and 9. The Hebrew word has Hosanna is an exclamation, meaning save now or praise now. They acknowledged his Messiahship, but in a man-centered fashion. Even as it appeared that the Lord was riding on the crest of the wave, the turbulent waves and boisterous seas were about to break in upon him. The storm clouds were gathering. You see, what you need to understand and appreciate this morning, the crowd that day were not interested in the Lord Jesus coming to them as a Savior. They were not interested in Jesus saving their souls, but only in saving the nation from their political opponents. Was he really the Messiah? If he was, why didn't he use his supernatural power against the Romans? But now that he has entered the city, maybe things were going to change. Now at last he will manifest himself as the conqueror. 
They were about to celebrate the Passover, which commemorated the Lord's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Egypt's bondage. What better occasion could there be for the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, to make the ultimate and final deliverance of his people from the tyranny of the Roman Empire? The people wanted a conquering, reigning Messiah who would come in great military power to throw off a a brutal yoke of Roman uh, 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 dominance and establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness where God's chosen people would have special favor. What they didn't realize was that Jesus did not come to conquer Rome, but to conquer sin and to conquer death. He did not come to make war with Rome, but to make peace with God for man. You see, the people wanted Jesus on their own terms. They weren't interested in bowing to a king who was not of their liking, even though he was the Son of God. They wanted Jesus to deal with anything and everything but their sin. And there are people like that today. They're open to a Jesus who will give them health, wealth, and worldly prosperity. Like the multitudes at the triumphal entry, they will loudly acclaim Jesus as long as they believe he will satisfy their selfish desires. But like the same multitude a few days later, they will reject and denounce him when he does not deliver what they expect. When his word confronts them with their need of a savior, they will curse him and they will turn away from him. Things haven't changed, you know. You see, someone has said this. I came across this the other day and I thought, this is, this summarizes it. Summarizes it. For those who love their reputation and want to be in charge, Jesus will always be an unwelcome intruder. Therefore, they will not bow before him. I had a colleague who was engaged in conversation with a man who attended his church and sat under his ministry. And in the course of a luncheon appointment, this man said to my ministerial colleague, if I were to do what you say needs to be done, my life would be radically changed, and I do not want my life to be changed. We meet with people like that every day. If I were to do what you say needs to be done, my life would be radically changed, and I do not want my life to be changed. You know why men and women are not saved this morning? This is not a slick answer. This is not a smart answer. This is a scriptural answer. They love their sin more than they love the Savior. Palm Sunday emphasizes that. The accuracy of the scriptures. The futility of the people. And the ministry of the Savior. I quote it again. I've quoted it often. Maybe it's a sign of old age going back to your childhood. I don't know. Little chorus I learned in the little mission hall in Lagadil. He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek. It was to say if he came. And when we call him Jesus, we call him 
by his name. Here is the fulfilling of prophecy. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you, literally having or bringing salvation. The purpose for which Jesus came into the world was to bring salvation to men and women. Here is how Paul Paul describes it when he writes to Titus. The grace of God that brings salvation. Here's how Peter defines it in his post-Pentecostal address. Neither is there salvation in anyone else. There is salvation in no one else. And as we look in out into our world this morning with all its tumult, with all its division, with all its injustice, we realize that what we need is not education. And it's not reformation. And it's not legislation. It's salvation. And that's why Jesus came. He brings salvation from the penalty of sin. Paul reminds us in Romans 3 that all of us have sinned. He reminds us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And he tells us in Romans 10, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You and I are dying physically and we are dead spiritually outside of Christ. And if we remain in that condition, we will die eternally. How thankful we should be this morning that our Savior came to bring salvation to bring salvation from the penalty of sin, to bring salvation from the power of sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. I remember as a very young Christian beginning to read the Bible and try to understand the Bible, I said, but being saved, I I thought I was saved. So I was. But in in my limited understanding as a young Christian, I didn't fully grasp what salvation entailed. It not only entailed being being saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death, but it entailed being saved from the power of sin in my life every day. You see, it takes power to conquer power. And it takes God's power to conquer man's power. Human wisdom can never understand the cross. Human wisdom will always undervalue the cross. Human wisdom will continue to misrepresent the cross. You remember that incident in Matthew 16 when Jesus was revealing to his followers the truth about his death and resurrection and Peter showed his ignorance of the cross and had the nerve to take the Lord aside and to rebuke him. To tell you, no Lord, this can't happen to you. How unlearned Peter was. How ignorant he was. But thank God the light began to dawn. And later when he wrote in his letter, he wrote these words. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's why he had come. Salvation is a continuous process in the believer's life as we are being delivered from Satan's constant attacks by God's overcoming power. We are being delivered every day by the power of the cross. And that's why Jesus came. And one day he will come to receive us and deliver us from the very presence of sin. And when that day comes, our salvation will be complete. I'm always challenged by 
Paul's words in Romans 13 when he says to his readers, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Why? Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. What does that mean? Our salvation. I thought we already had salvation. What does it mean? Our sal- it means this, that the completion of our salvation, the day when we shall see him, the day when we shall be like him, is nearer than when we first believed. Men and women in Christ this morning, we are nearer heaven today than we've ever been. Men and women in Christ this morning, we're nearer the coming again of the Lord Jesus than we've ever been. And if I read my Bible aright this morning, I come to this conviction that we're living in the very last of the last days. We're going to break bread in a few moments. There will come a day when we'll have no need of bread. We'll have no need of wine. We shall see Jesus. What a moment that will be for separated saints. One by one, their seats were emptied. One by one, they went their way. Here the circle has been broken. It'll be complete that day. What a moment will be for serving saints, for those who have been faithful, for those who have been faithful in the little things, for those who have been faithful in their attendance at the house of God, for those who have been faithful in the seasons of prayer, for those who have been faithful in serving God, even though it was little. Little was much because God was in it. But what a moment for slumbering sinners when the day of opportunity is gone and there's no more time to be right with God. Palm Sunday, it's all about the accuracy of the Scriptures. It's all about the futility of the people. It's all about the ministry of the Saviour. The the majesty of the King who came in lowliness and righteousness the mastery of the king as he commandeered and controlled the young beast, the ministry of the king as he brings salvation, a salvation that deals with my past, deals with my present, deals with my future. What a king. Jesus is king, and I will adore him. Philip Doddridge, in the 18th century, wrote these tremendous words, My gracious Lord, I own thy right to every service I can pay and call it my supreme delight to hear thy dictates and obey. May God bless his word to all our hearts. We thank him for it, for his name's sake. Amen.